Well, thank you, uh, band, so much. Um, yes, my name is Paul Brandis. I graduated uh, from here at Sterling in 2011, uh, and I married uh, Ashley Earl, who graduated class of 2009. Uh, we're living in Kansas City, uh, just right up the road, uh, and we've got one son named Bevan and another son on the way. Really excited about brothers. Um, think that'll be a lot of fun, and, uh, and I'm really glad to be here today. Uh, before I, I pray for our time in the Word, I did want to mention that my church, Christ Community uh, Church in Kansas the city a couple years ago started a really awesome uh, program for uh, students that graduate from college, so just graduated college seniors, um, and it's called the Kansas City Fellows Program. I've actually been here a couple times and, and have mentioned it before in announcements and such. Uh, Jason Pritchard went through our inaugural year last year, and Josh Landis is in it uh, right now, and I actually have the director with me uh, today. Chris Fernhout is right in the back there. Uh, he is the bald guy, um, so that's how you can know Chris, and uh, uh, yep, got much love for you, Chris. And uh, he will be uh, at a table uh, near the calf uh, if you want to talk to him about this. If you're a junior, but especially if you're a senior, uh, talk to Chris uh, about this amazing opportunity uh, to, to do something great uh, your year after your first year out of Sterling. So um, as we uh, turn to God's word in Isaiah 25, um, I really believe that we need his help to understand it. So I'd ask you to bow your heads with me uh, and pray so that God will speak through, uh, through me in this time. Our Lord and God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. I pray, Father, that I would decrease and that you would increase and that we would walk out of here with a greater understanding of what it means to live with hope. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm not sure there's anything worse in life than receiving a phone call letting you know that someone you love has passed away. And most recently for me, this was my grandmother on my mom's side. Uh, my nana lived with us when we were growing up. Um, she had a kind of basement apartment, and I have these really fond memories of playing this silly card game with her, Skippo, uh, while watching the Cubs lose again and again and again. She would have loved last night, right? Comeback victory by the Cubs. But uh, one day last year, she was just gone. I was sitting in a coffee shop answering some emails when the phone call came from my dad. I mean, what are you even supposed to do when you get news like that? Without a doubt, death is the absolute worst. It's a monster, and anyone who says otherwise is just pretending. When confronted with death, something inside each one of us screams out, it ought not be this way. But it is this way, isn't it? Death is the end, and then that's it. Or is it? Could it be that the end is only the beginning? Could it be that the end is only the beginning? That's what our passage teaches this morning. And I don't want you to miss it. The end is only the beginning. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. Here it comes, the pie in the sky message about heaven. There's no way that any of this is true. And I get that. We so desperately want death to not be the end, don't we? But just because we want something to be true doesn't mean that it is true. And it's hard to believe death seems so final. How could something possibly come after it? But that's what Isaiah says in our passage today. The prophet Isaiah, he looks out and he sees a very different sort of future. He looks out and he writes about a very different sort of world. And if he's right... 
If he's right, and if the end is only the beginning, then we will see all wrongs made right. We will see and eat a feast like never before. And we will see death die. Now, I know, I know that's a big if. If the end is only the beginning, yeah, right. Some of you today here, you don't believe the Bible. You're not a Christian, and you only come to chapel so that you can get your 14 credits. I know, I get it. My charge to you this morning is to not turn me out. Because even if you don't believe Isaiah, even if you don't believe what the Bible says about life after death, don't you want it to be true? We all know that death is a monster. We've all experienced that. The Bible teaches that the end is only the beginning. What if the Bible is right? Well, if it is, then we will see all wrongs made right. All wrongs made right. And right away, I hope that this signals that this isn't some pie-in-the-sky message that has no application in the here and now. Because what is more practical, what is more real life than taking wrongs and making them right again? And this, this is exactly where Isaiah starts at the beginning of chapter 25. The preceding dozen chapters or so have been songs of judgment poured out against God's enemies. God's enemies who think that they're getting away with evil, but they're not. What we see so clearly in the preceding chapters is that God will deal with sin. He will deal with evil. And here, at the beginning of Isaiah 25, we hear a song on the lips of the faithful, those who remained near to God through it all. And what do they sing? I love the way the message paraphrase writes, writes out these verses here. Listen in to the, the, to the song of the faithful. God, you are my God. I celebrate you. I praise you. You've done your share of miracle wonders, well-thought-out plans, solid and sure. Here, you've reduced the city to rubble, the strong city to a pile of stones. The enemy big city is now a non-city never to be a city again. Superpowers will see it and honor you. Brutal oppressors bow in worshipful reverence. They'll see that you, God, take care of the poor, that you take care of poor people in trouble, that you provide a warm, dry place in bad weather, provide a cool place when it's hot. Brutal oppressors are like a winter blizzard and vicious foreigners like high noon in the desert." But you, you, God, shelter from the storm and shade from the sun. You shut the mouths of the big-mouthed bullies. It's the song of the faithful. And even though it may feel like it sometimes, God is not asleep at the wheel. He is acutely aware of the evils and injustices that exist in this world. God knows all about human tyranny and oppression. And yeah, it does feel like evil is up by 10 runs in the top of the ninth. But guess what? We've got one more at bat. And Isaiah 25 assures us that in that at bat, God is going to do some wonderful things. He's going to overturn human tyranny and abuses of power. He will take care of the poor and the vulnerable. He will shelter his people from the storm and he will destroy the strongholds of evil. And he will do all of this because the God of the Bible is the God of the poor. He's the God of the needy. He's the God of those suffering from the intense heat of a world turned against them. The God of the Bible is the God of the forgotten, of the beaten down, and of the oppressed. And Isaiah 25 reminds us, this God is going to take all wrongs, all wrongs done against the oppressed, and one day make them right again. 
Friends, think about the magnitude of that statement. Here's what it means. Here's what it means. Never again will the bully win on the playground. Never again will a defenseless girl be trafficked for sex. Never again will someone be raped or murdered. Never again will the abusive father land a blow. Never again will the dictator rule in riches while his people suffer in squalor. Never again will an unarmed black man be killed at a traffic stop. And can we just stop there for a second? I know how politicized this is. I've been following the stories just like you. But lately in this arena, I've been trying to listen a lot more. One of my best friends is another pastor in Kansas City named Brian. Brian works at our sister church, Christian Fellowship Baptist, which is a predominantly black congregation. And I have learned so much by listening to Brian tell me of his experience as a black male. And and, and here's what I've realized. I've realized that our experiences, his and mine in life, could not be more different. And I think it's almost entirely due to the color of our skin. We're both fathers. We're both pastors. Heck, our churches aren't even 10 minutes from each other. We're both active in the community. But, But when it comes to living in that community... When I get pulled over by police, which hardly ever happens... I have one of two emotional reactions. I'm I'm either indignant because I don't think I did anything wrong. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't breaking any laws. I didn't run red lights. Officer, what are you doing? Let me go. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm indignant. Or I feel guilty. I feel guilty because I was speeding, because I did run a red light, because I was breaking the law. Officer, I'm sorry. I'll take my ticket. Those are my two emotional responses, the only ones I've ever had when I've gotten pulled over. Do you know what my friend Brian's response is when he's pulled over by police, which happens way more often, by the way? His one emotional response as that police officer walks to his window is fear. Fear that he won't make it home to his wife and kids, even if he complies 100% of the way. I think, and, and maybe you agree with me, that there's something wrong about that. It's easy to push these stories aside until you start thinking about people you know in the midst of them. I sat across the table not even a week after Terrence Crutcher had been shot. And Brian sat across the table from him and he looked at me and he said, Paul, that could have been me. Listen, if you see that a black man has been killed by police and your first response is to look up his arrest record, that's not okay. If you see that a black male has been killed by police and your first response isn't to grieve and mourn over the loss of human life, that's a problem. Because Isaiah 25 reminds us that God grieves, that God weeps. Isaiah 25 reminds us that it ought not be this way and that one day it won't be this way because the God of the Bible is going to come back and he's going to take this wrong and he's going to make it right. So we should grieve We should grieve for Terrence Crutcher, and we should grieve for a world where my friend Brian fears for his life because of the color of his skin. And while we grieve, while we grieve, we should also take heart in the words of Isaiah 25. We should take heart that one day, that one day God will shut the mouths of the big-mouthed bullies. That one day God will overturn all human tyranny and oppression. 
But until that day, here's the question that I've been wrestling with, and, and I want to invite you to wrestle with it with me. What are we doing to make wrongs right? How are we working to make wrongs right? Because while the Bible tells us to wait on our God, we're not supposed to wait on the sidelines. No, we're supposed to get into the game today. If we call ourselves Christians, then we are called, commanded, and expected to work as ambassadors on behalf of our God, our God who turns wrongs into right. So how are you doing that? Today, how are you working to make wrongs right? Because if your view of heaven, if your view of heaven doesn't compel you to work for change in the here and now, then you need to get a new view of heaven. Here's a really small first step that you can take. Commit to pray regularly for those in our current structures who are left out or oppressed, for those who are forgotten or abandoned. And you don't have to invent these prayers either because the God of the Bible, again, cares so deeply for the vulnerable. He cares so deeply for the plight of the downtrodden. The book of Psalms is full of these prayers. Write them down and make them your own. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 137, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Psalm 140, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. There is obviously so much more that we can do in the here and now to take wrongs and make them right. But praying, praying is a real and good first step. Are you doing that? If the end is only the beginning, then we will see all wrongs made right. But that's not all. No, we will also see and eat a feast like never before. As someone who uh, clearly enjoys a good meal, this imagery resonates deeply with me. And I think it would have resonated very deeply with Isaiah's original readers too. See, we have to remember that Isaiah is writing and prophesying at a time when the Assyrian Empire was threatening and then was taking over the nation of Israel, God's people. This was not a time where God's people were experiencing rich food and well-aged wine. That's what we read about in Isaiah 25, 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. But this is not what Isaiah's readers were experiencing when they were reading this, when they were hearing it for the first time. No, their tables and their cupboards looked a lot like your mini-fridges, just empty and sad. (laughs) And yet... And yet God says to them, one day, one day I will make for you and for all the faithful a feast, a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. Now, now I may be a a bit of a nerd, but uh, when I hear this verse, Isaiah 25, 6, it, it makes me think of the first book of the Harry Potter series. That's right, Harry Potter. Maybe you've read it. Harry has lived with his horrible Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon for his first 11 years, unaware of his status in the wizarding world as the infamous boy who lived. And actually, his aunt and uncle have been so horrible to him that he's spent the majority of those 11 years living underneath the stairs in a room that's a glorified closet. The early pages of the book detail how terrible this environment is as a way of drawing contrast with Hogwarts, the wizarding school that Harry will be called to attend. Okay, yeah, I'm definitely a nerd. (laughs) 
But here's why Isaiah 25.6 makes me think of the opening pages of the Harry Potter series. J.K. Rowling makes a point to highlight the lack of food that Harry received at the home of his aunt and uncle. She talks about this. He's fighting his fat cousin Dudley for scraps. In his whole life to that point, Harry Potter knew nothing of rich food and drink that satisfied. Knew nothing of that. Enter, enter the opening feast of Harry's first school year at Hogwarts. Let's watch. Let the feast begin. Now, now, I know this isn't quite right, uh, but when we eventually sit down to the feast that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 25, I, I kind of like to picture God at the head table like Dumbledore, right? <laughs> We're all at the tables, and he stands up and he says, let the feast begin. And what a glorious day that will be. You know, I find it fascinating that, the, that fascinating that the Bible is framed beginning to end with food, food. From the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis rebelling against God by eating the forbidden fruit, all the way to Revelation 19, to the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus. The angel in Revelation 19 speaks to the apostle John, and he says this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we should take it a step further too. The eating of the fruit in Genesis 3 destroyed our fellowship and communion with God. That's what we were created for, fellowship and communion with God. We had it and then we rebelled against God and we lost it. Genesis 3. And we've, we've spent every day since, every day since trying to replace that fellowship and communion with little g gods that will never satisfy us. But by contrast, the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of Scripture is the most glorious moment that Isaiah points to in Isaiah 25, 6. It's the feast that he's talking about. And not only in this feast does God prepare the feast of of well-aged wine and rich food, but God dines with us. Genesis 3, in the garden, fellowship and communion with God, broken and shattered. Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb, fellowship and communion with God restored never to be lost again. If death is not the end, then we will see and eat a feast like never before. We will experience true and perfect fellowship with God, something that we can't even properly anticipate right now. We're still so taken with sin. So so let me ask you, are you preparing for the feast Are you preparing for the feast? In other words, what are you doing about the gap between the life that you were created to live, fellowship and communion with God, and the the life that you actually live day in and day out? Because we feel that gap, don't we? That gap is there because of sin. And on this side of the feast, we're never going to see it closed fully. But to ignore this gap completely is to miss the entire point. The invitation The invitation to this feast is not a get-out-of-hell-free card that we wave as we pass go. The invitation to this feast is actually an invitation to an entirely new way of living, to an entirely new way of eating, to extend the metaphor. So what are you eating? 
Are you preparing for the feast? Are you consuming Christ, becoming more like him each day, closing the gap between the life you were created for and the life you actually live? Or, or, and this would be so tragic, or are you still ignoring the gap in your life, just hoping that your invitation, your yes to the invitation to the feast still stands? If death is not the end, then we will see and eat a feast like never before. But again, that's not all. No, no, we will also see death die. If the end is only the beginning, then yes, we will see death die. Verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 25 read this. And God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. God will swallow up death forever. Like I said at the top, death is the absolute worst. It's the final boss in the video game. It's the last enemy to be defeated. And death is coming for each one of us. It's the consequence for our sin and rebellion back in the garden. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says that the sting of death, the sting of death is sin. Sin is the poison we drink day in and day out. Another sip, another gulp. Whether you chug it or just try it, it's always lethal. It's killing you from the inside out. And it will kill you, even if it tastes good for a while. You know it and I know it. Sin is poison, and yet we keep guzzling. Like an alcoholic searching for life at the end of a bottle. Gulp after gulp after gulp, swallow after swallow after swallow. But, but, thanks be to God, because what does our passage say? God will swallow up death forever. That word swallowed means to devour, to drown, to overwhelm. Death swallowed up with a belch of satisfaction, never to be seen again. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes from this passage in Isaiah 25. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, death will be swallowed up. He writes, and then, and then he says these two questions, two of the best questions in the whole of the Bible. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And he, and he finishes it with this little tagline. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's just it, right? Because how is any of this possible? How will all wrongs be made right? How will we be able to partake in the feast? How will death die? How is victory ours? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And only through Jesus, right? Only through Jesus. Because in the whole history of the world, Jesus is the only one who has defeated death. The only one. And we may be so desensitized to it, but that's the story of all stories. It's been ripped off so many times that we can't even count. Jesus, the man who died and yet lived to tell about it. What's Harry Potter's nickname? I've already mentioned it. The boy who lived. She's not drawing from Jesus there. It's the story to end all stories. And it's ours. It's the Christian story. Jesus defeated death, which means that one day you and I will see the death of death. 
Can you imagine that with me? The destruction of violence and war, the annihilation of cancer, Parkinson's disease, and dementia, the end of lust and greed and abuse and selfishness and loneliness and depression and all of it, the death of death swallowed up and flushed on down. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? Here's to hoping that it is true. One final question this morning. Are you facing death with hope? The end is only the beginning. So are you facing death with hope? We're all facing death, whether we recognize it or not. Our own deaths and the deaths of every person we love. Yes, we grieve. Of course we do. Yes, we're afraid. Of course we are. We're all waiting on death. But while you're waiting, are you doing that with hope? Isaiah 25, 9 reads this. It says, it will be said on that day, the day that God swallows up death forever, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In the Bible, the idea of waiting on God is inextricably linked with hope. One passage that beautifully ties them together is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. They read this, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And here it is, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting with hope. Are you facing death with hope? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor who resisted the Nazis, was 39, 39 as he walked to the gallows and said these words, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Last year, Elizabeth Elliot passed away. She was the widow of Jim Elliot, the missionary who was killed at 28, trying to bring the gospel to the unreached people groups in Ecuador. Talk about a woman who felt the sting of death. And yet, her life was beautifully and incredibly characterized by hope. Christianity Today reprinted one of her articles that was originally written in 1969, titled, We Were Hoping. It's about the resurrection. It's about the end only being the beginning. And here's how she closes the article. If resurrection is a fact, then there is no situation so hopeless, no horizon so black that God cannot there find his glory. The truth is that without these ruined hopes, without that death, without the suffering that is called inevitable, the glory itself would be impossible. And when we find ourselves most hopeless, the road most taxing, we may also find that it is then that the risen Christ catches up to us on the way better than our dreams, better than all of our hopes. For it is he, not his gifts, not his power, not what he can do for us, but he himself who comes and makes himself known to us. So let me ask you again, are you facing death with hope? Are you facing death with the risen Christ next to your side? If not, why not? 
Friends, the end is only the beginning. Your end is only your beginning. If we're with Jesus, then the risen, if we're with Jesus, the risen Christ, then we will see all wrongs made right. We will see and eat a feast like never before, and we will see death die. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think that one of the best descriptions of all of this is found in uh, Lord of the Rings. I, I know, I know, Harry Potter reference and a Lord of the Rings reference in the same sermon. Go ahead, brand me a nerd right now. But nerd or not, this passage is undeniably beautiful. At the very end of the story, at the very end of Lord of the Rings, this is the return of the king. After the one ring to rule them all has been destroyed, after everything has been made new again, well, well that's our story, isn't it? Tolkien writes from our vantage point, sacrifice and hope, the swallowing up of all that is evil, the death of death. In closing, listen to these words, story time with Paul. Full memory flooded back and Sam cried aloud. It wasn't a dream. Then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind him in the land of the king and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? He asked. But Sam lay back and stared with his open, with his open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. How do I feel? Sam cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like all the songs I have ever heard. And Sam laughed aloud for sheer delight and he stood up and he cried, Oh, great glory and splendor and all my wishes have become true. Everything wrong made right. In the presence forever of the king, the risen king who was dead and yet lives. Yeah, but this is just some silly story. Is it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity um, to study your word together. I pray, Father, that um, each one of these students would be facing death with hope that even though um, that is the end in this life, it would not be the end for them because they trust in the risen Christ. I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for this institution. I pray for it, Lord. I pray for Sterling College. I'm grateful for the impact it had upon my life, and I, I pray that it would have the same impact on the lives of these students. Thank you for them, God. And I pray